Let us pray. O Almighty God, You are rich in mercy to all who call upon You. You draw near to the humble and contrite for the sacrifices of a broken heart You will not despise. Even as You sent Your Son to be our Savior and to manifest Your grace in the world to all who put their trust in You, so we ask You today to send Your Holy Spirit on all who are gathered here so that we, being cleansed by Your grace and illuminated by Your truth and heartened by Your peace, may receive Your gifts today and worthily show forth Your praise. Help us to learn Your Word in meekness. Help us to render thanks for all Your mercies. Help us to obtain gracious answers to all our prayers. Help us to joyfully partake of Your bounteous table to the healing and nourishing of our souls. Help us to go forth from here to live lives of sacrificial service and self-giving love. Lord, we give You thanks and praise for who You are and for all Your wonderful works. And we rest in the sure mercies of Your covenant promises through Christ Jesus our Lord and Savior in whose strong and glorious name we pray. Amen. And our lesson of the day comes from Malachi chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Again, listen carefully to God's Word. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to My name, says the Lord of armies, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your festivals, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of armies. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant for fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many away from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way, You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of armies. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. There ends our reading. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Your Word that You have inspired, that You moved by Your Spirit, men of old, to record Your your Word for us. We thank You that You have preserved that same Word for us, for our edification, for our benefit, for our sanctification and instruction in Your way. Give us ears to hear all that You would say to us through Your Word this morning, and may Your Spirit bless the preaching of Your Word. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen.
Our text for today, the first nine verses of Malachi chapter 2, picks up with many of the same themes and ideas that Malachi addressed at the end of chapter 1 that we talked about a couple weeks ago. But this follow-up sermon, this part 2 sermon, is clearly addressed specifically to the priest of Israel. The whole book is generally addressed to the priests of Israel and to their uh, failings in leading the people, but it's, it has direct consequence, direct application on the nation. Chapter 1, though, ended with a specific curse on those who were attempting to cheat God with their worthless sacrifices. Remember, people were vowing to offer God uh, a good animal, and they were offering a blemished one instead. Or maybe it could be that the people, uh, that the priests were allowing the people um, to offer the the blemished animals and the priests were keeping the good ones for themselves. Whatever the case was, chapter 1 ended with a curse specifically on that behavior, on that sin. Chapter 2 includes a curse on the priest's as a whole, for their general unfaithfulness, and specifically in their failure to teach God's Word, the failure to instruct the people in the Word of God. Malachi sets the tone of this passage with uh, a standard prophetic uh, formula. He begins in verse 1 with, and now. That seems kind of generic, but if you read through the prophets, they have a they have a tendency to lay out a case against God's people, to present their evidence, so to speak, in court before the Lord. And then once they have laid out their evidence, they declare God's verdict. And now. And so this is the verdict of judgment that God is pronouncing against the unfaithful priests of Israel. The central theme of this passage is the covenant with Levi. When you talk about covenant theology or when you survey the covenants of the Bible as uh, we Reformed folks are are apt to do, uh, the covenant of Levi usually doesn't get a whole lot of attention. You might be able to give me some ideas about the covenant with Noah or Abraham or David uh, or Moses, but the covenant with Levi often gets overlooked. And so we need to Make sure we understand what this covenant entailed, what was involved in this covenant with Levi, so we'll uh, know what Malachi uh, is talking about here. I want to give, I want to survey very briefly uh, four passages that address the covenant with Levi, and and you'll see if you pay attention to these uh, four background verses, you'll see a lot of themes that Malachi is picking up. And, and working with here in chapter 2. You have to go all the way back to start to get, to get start with Levi. We have to go back to Genesis. Genesis 34 is one of uh, the key passages uh, where we get to see Levi. Um, he was one of the patriarchs, or uh, one of the 12 uh, sons of Jacob. Uh, but remember, Jacob didn't have only 12 sons. He had daughters as well. And one of those daughters was Dinah. 
Jacob and Leah's daughter Dinah was defiled by a man named Shechem, who was the son of Hamor. He was a Gentile, and he defiled Dinah. But even though Shechem repented and sought to make things right, he sought to do the right thing by Dinah and to marry her, Simeon and Levi retaliated against Shechem and the whole city by deceiving the people and slaughtering all the men in the city. When Jacob uh, was about to die, when he was on his deathbed, he gathered all of his sons together to bless them, to pronounce God's uh, word over them. He actually brought up this incident and he cursed Simeon and Levi's unrighteous anger for wielding the sword uh, in wrath and doing this horrible uh, sin, this horrible deed. They were jealous, they were wrathful, but they their wrath was expressed in a sinful, uncontrolled way. That's the first passage about Levi himself. These other passages deal with some of Levi's uh, prominent descendants. In Exodus 32, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. This is the story when the people of Israel commit the sin, they worship the golden calf at Mount Sinai. While Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law and instructions for the tabernacle, Aaron is leading the people into idolatry. They're casting their gold uh, jewelry, the spoils of Egypt, into the fire. And instead of making a tabernacle for the worship of God, their Redeemer, Aaron leads them in making an idol to worship instead. Moses comes down from the mountain. He uh, does this uh, inspection of jealousy with the nation uh, based on uh, sort of the precursor to Numbers chapter 5. He calls the Levites. He calls to the camp. Whoever is with God, whoever is on my side, come to me. Well, all the Levites come and stand with Moses. Um, they were apparently not participating in the idolatry of the golden calf. And Moses commands them to go throughout the camp and to execute those who were participating in the worship of the idol. In fact, they are so without showing partiality for their kinsmen, for their relatives, they executed 3,000 men who had committed idolatry. And in, so you have in Genesis 34, you have Simeon and Levi in their foolish anger, in their wrath uh, that's not bridled, that's not righteous. And they are cursed. That anger is cursed by Jacob. But when the Levites in Exodus 32 uh, show their righteous zeal for God, they are blessed. They are blessed for that zeal. And they are actually set aside for God's service because they are zealous for God's covenant. They are zealous for God's Word. We move on to the book of Numbers. And in Numbers 25, the passage that we heard this morning, Numbers 25 is very similar to Exodus 32, the story of the golden calf. Except in Exodus, in Numbers 25, you have an even clearer connection between idolatry and, spirit and, and adultery. This is a theme that is very prominent throughout 
the Bible, especially in the prophets, that when God's people commit idolatry, they are committing spiritual adultery, breaking covenant with God through worshiping idols or any other way of breaking covenant with God is compared to marital infidelity. And in Numbers 25, those two things were actually happening. The daughters of Moab were seducing the men of Israel, and they were not only participating in the worship of Baal, but they were intermarrying. They were committing sexual sin with the women of Moab. By the way, Numbers 31 tells us who instigated the women of Moab to seduce the men of Israel in this way. It was, of all people, Balaam. Balaam was killed in number 31 because he had, he had encouraged, incited the women of Moab to intermarry. That's what Second Peter is, one of the things Second Peter is referring to uh, about Balaam. So even so, what you have is uh, Moses pronounces a death sentence in Numbers 25 on those who had participated in the worship of Baal, the idol Baal, and the fertility cult that went along with the worship of Baal. Even in the face of uh, Moses pronouncing a death sentence like this, you have an Israelite man who brings a Moabite woman into his tent in the middle of the camp in broad daylight. Uh, while all the people are, all the faithful are weeping and, and uh, calling on God to have mercy uh, at the tent of meeting. Phineas can't take it anymore. Phineas is a Levite. Uh, he's filled with righteous indignation. He grabs a spear, he goes to the tent, and he pierces the man and the woman through the stomach uh, and brings to an end the curse that God had sent on the people. Phineas's zeal for God's covenant, his jealousy uh, for God's honor, was what saved uh, so many of the camp of Israel from the plague that God had sent on the people. And so because of Phineas's jealousy for God's covenant, the Lord made a covenant with peace, a covenant of peace with Phineas and with his descendants. A covenant of life, a perpetual priesthood, and peace for Phineas and, and the Levites. The final passage is, a, is a, short, a short one in the uh, end of the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 33, verses 8 through 11. Is when, this is kind of uh, the parallel to Genesis 49. At the end of Jacob's life, he gathered the twelve sons together and pronounced God's Word, God's blessing on them. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy, right before Moses dies, he calls the tribes together and he pronounces God's word on the twelve tribes. And in Moses' pronouncement, he declares, he praises the Levites for their zeal for God's covenant, for their refusal to show partiality in the incident in Exodus 32, for their uh, zeal for God's covenant as demonstrated by Phineas in Numbers 25. And as a result of their zeal for God's law, for their jealousy for God's covenant and for the honor of God's name, they are entrusted with the great responsibility to teach God's law to the people and to offer sacrifices for the people. 
That, that, those are the two main duties that they have. To instruct the people in God's law and to lead the people in worship uh, through offering sacrifices on behalf of the nation. In addition, Moses prays that God would bless the work of their hands. That's tribute offering language, right? The work of your hands. And that God would crush the loins of Levi's adversaries. That God would uh, eliminate or diminish the uh, descendants of those who oppose Levi. This is just a quick survey. I hope you jotted these down so you can go back and look up these passages later. But I think that that you'll be able to see these themes that are consistently uh, dealt with uh, throughout those passages in here in Malachi chapter 2. This passage in Malachi 2 is full of stark contrasts between what the priests were supposed to be doing and what they were actually doing. And so, uh, Malachi's pronouncement of judgment is often an ironic reversal of the blessings that God had promised now being turned into a curse of judgment. God makes the punishment fit the crime. And we'll see how God promises to turn their blessing into curses. And that's that's where this all begins in verse 2. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to My name, says the Lord of armies, Yahweh of armies, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. This is the ultimate tragic irony. That covenant unfaithfulness invokes God's covenant not in a way that brings blessing, but in a way that brings curses and even turns the promised blessings of the covenant into curses of judgment. Those who failed to repent. Remember in the previous passage, God called upon the people to to repent. Malachi called on the people to entreat the Lord's favor, to throw themselves on His mercy. And now those who are who fail to repent, repent. Those who refuse to repent, are promised God's curse. One, and there are three general categories of blessings that are turned into curses. The first one is the diminishment of the offspring of the Levites. Remember, back in Numbers 25, the covenant with Levi was a covenant of life that was promised a promise of perpetual priesthood to Levi and his descendants. A promise that he would always have a descendant to minister before the Lord. And remember in Deuteronomy chapter 33 that Moses pronounced a curse on those who would oppose Levi and ask God to diminish their offspring. So here's the irony that because the Levites have broken covenant with God, a covenant of life, of perpetual priesthood, they have forfeited that blessing of the covenant. That their descendants would be diminished. Instead of God diminishing the descendants of their enemies, God would diminish their descendants. I think there is a foreshadowing here of the end the coming end of the Levitical priesthood. 
And as we'll see, Malachi will give us, in chapter 3, he'll give us an even clearer uh, foreshadowing, foretelling uh, of the future of the Levitical priesthood. So that's the first uh, way that a blessing is turned into a curse. The first form of judgment is that eventually, if they keep this up, they're not going to have a representative to stand in God's presence and to minister before the Lord. They have forfeited that blessing, and it's now become a curse. The second way that a blessing is turned into a curse is found in verse 3. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring, or diminish your offspring, and here it is, to spread dung on your faces, the dung of your festivals, and you shall be taken away with it. This is very graphic, very gross language here. Having dung spread on your face would be a disgrace to anyone. Okay, let's be clear about that. That would be a disgrace to anyone. But don't miss the irony, the reversal here. The point here is that if you are a priest and you have contact with dung, if you have dung spread on your face, you would be disqualified from serving in the sanctuary. You would be unclean. This is the very problem described in Zechariah chapter 3. After the people rebuild the temple, the high priest Joshua is pictured with filthy garments. He can't go in and minister before the Lord because he has no way to be cleansed, to be consecrated for ministry in the newly rebuilt temple. And so God Himself has to provide clean garments. He has to purify Joshua the high priest so that he can go in and minister before the Lord. Well, the opposite of that is taking place here. Instead of making the priests fit for service and cleansing them and giving them clean garments of glory and beauty to enter God's presence, God is promising to smear dung on their faces. This is the intestines, the entrails, the inner parts of the animal. Uh, this is not pretty stuff, right? But this would disqualify the priest from serving in the temple. And furthermore, he makes it explicit that this is not just a little bit of dung. He says that he's going to spread the dung of their festivals on their faces. There's double irony here. One is the amount of dung that will be spread. I know this is probably not what you were expecting to hear in the sermon this morning, but I promise this has, this has a significance. I'm not just uh, belaboring this point uh, to, to wake you up or anything. Um, if you have a festival, this refers to the three festivals a year that every male in Israel was required to attend. And if you have a festival where every male in Israel is bringing an animal to offer, that's going to be a lot of animals. And that's going to be a lot of dung, right? So this is a great volume of uh, defilement. This is not just going to be a little bit on a few of the priests. This is going to be enough to cover pretty much all the priests. This shows the extent of the corruption and the failure among the priesthood. But even more, the irony is important to recognize that 
the offerings of the festivals of Israel were intended to be a great blessing for the priests. How were the priests able to live without... Remember, the priests had no land allotted to them in Israel. How were they supposed to have food to eat? How were they supposed to have money and provision for their livelihood? It came through the offerings that God's people brought in in sacrifice. Except for the ascension offering, which was entirely burnt on the altar. Every other offering, there was some way that God provided food or provision or livelihood for the priesthood. And so, these offerings, which were supposed to be to them the source of their livelihood, the source of their food, the source of God's provision, now become the source of their greatest disgrace, the source of their loss of livelihood as they are disqualified from ministering in the temple, disqualified from eating God's holy food and God's holy presence with God's holy people. And instead of having all of those privileges that came with being a Levite in the covenant of Levi, instead of stuffing their faces with God's holy food in God's holy place with God's holy people as the nation gathered in worship, the priests would have dung smeared on their faces. They would be removed from God's presence and they would be taken outside the camp and dumped in the same place that the entrails and the excrement of the animals would be dumped. They went from being in the holy place to being in the unholiest of unholy places. This is the great another reversal, another way that God turns their blessings into curses. Finally, uh, the third one that I want to uh, look at is in verses 6, 7, and 8. Verse 6 says, True instruction. The word instruction here is the word Torah. So listen for how this word is used. True instruction was in his mouth, Phineas, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction, Torah, from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the covenant. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says Yahweh of armies. And then down in verse 9, he says, I make you despise and abase before all the people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. The word Torah can refer to uh, instruction in general. It can refer to the law of Moses specifically, or it can refer to the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. But there's a play on this word here in this passage. In Deuteronomy 33, Moses says that the, the Levites specifically were entrusted with the responsibility to teach God's law, to instruct the people 
in God's way and how to live in covenant relationship with the God who had saved them and redeemed them and blessed them and claimed them as his own. However, here in Malachi, we find a stark contrast between true instruction, true Torah, and false instruction, false Torah, between what the Levites should have been teaching and what they were actually teaching. In verse 6, we see some of the results of godly instruction, of true Torah. Malachi lists three. Peace, uprightness, and rescue from sin. Turning many away from iniquity. Let's think uh, briefly about each of these. The first one is peace. The Hebrew word here is shalom. Right? You probably have heard that word. And this word shalom is a rich, uh, multifaceted description of abundant blessings, of flourishing, total flourishing, that comes as a result of living in accord with God's gracious covenant. This is one result of faithful, godly instruction in God's Word. Another one mentioned is uprightness. What do you think of? That's uh, when you think of the word uprightness, you think of standing upright. That's because that's exactly what it means. The word has the idea of a level place where you're able to stand upright. Where you don't. It's not like you have to to duck. You don't have to. Uh, it's not uneven terrain where you're stumbling and tripping. You're able to stand and walk upright without concern for getting knocked in the head or uh, falling and tripping over something or stepping in quicksand or whatever the case may be. There's sure footing and freedom from encumbrance when you're able to walk uprightly. And this is a picture of true instruction in God's Word. Walking in God's ways does require great sacrifice. It involves a good deal of difficulty on the part of the, of the people of God, but there is also freedom in that, in God's way. Freedom from the weight and bondage of sin. Freedom from the sin that will make your life miserable and wreck, uh, wreck your life. The sacrifice and the difficulty that comes from walking faithfully uh, and uprightly in God's Word is far superior, much more to be preferred than stumbling and tripping and falling in the pit uh, of sin. The third consequence, the third result of faithful instruction is turning many away from iniquity. It's rescue from sin. Proper instruction in God's Word convicts us of our sin. But not only does God's Word convict us of our sin, God's Word provides a way of restoration, calls us to repentance, and shows us how to, uh, to receive forgiveness and to return to God's, to God's covenant favor. And also, as a part of instruction in God's Word, is instruction in how to worship God, how to renew covenant with God, how to be restored to God in worship. 
So with these three, these are the three main things that the, the Levites were supposed to be. Um, these were three ways that their faithful instruction and faithful teaching in God's word was supposed to be a blessing to the people of Israel. But instead, the very opposite was happening. In verse 8, the Lord says that you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi. Instead of experiencing the abundant blessings of covenant faithfulness, the Levites, through their corrupt instruction, through false Torah, had corrupted God's covenant and forfeited the life and peace that they had been promised and that would have been a blessing to the nation. Verse 9 says that they were showing partiality in their instruction. It's not exactly clear uh, what that is referring to, but it seems that maybe they were picking and choosing the parts of God's law that they wanted to teach and uphold. Or, as you look in Matthew 15, the Gospel lesson from this morning, Jesus indicts the Pharisees of uh, teaching as doctrines of God the traditions of men. Maybe it was that the Levites were putting aside God's law and making up their own ideas for how things uh, ought to be. Whatever the case is, their failure to teach God's Word in all of its breadth and in all of its beauty and to hold the people accountable to God's covenant forfeited the life and the peace uh, that God had promised. Um, And instead of leading God's people to walk uprightly in the path of blessing, the Levites had caused the nation to stumble. Their instruction had become an obstacle and a snare that instead of saving many from iniquity, had led many to destruction. Their instruction, instead of being like uh, the road sign on the dangerous road uh, that tells you, you know, watch out for the cliff or watch out for falling rocks or, you know, sharp curve ahead, instead of being like that kind of, of road sign, their instruction had become like a detour sign that pointed you straight over the cliff. The priests, and this this is the irony here, is that the priests who were supposed to be the most zealous for God's law were defiling it with their teaching and their bad example. The priests who were charged with maintaining God's covenant had corrupted it by refusing to honor their Lord. The priests who had been endowed with awesome responsibilities because they feared God now showed no fear and had forfeited the blessings of the covenant. And the messengers of God's covenant had failed their Lord and His people. And so, remember, Malachi's name means my messenger. And his his prophecy is in large part, dealing with these messengers of the covenant who are falling down on the job. They are supposed to be teaching people God's word, and now God is bringing a word of judgment to them. But Malachi also tells us about a coming 
messenger of the covenant who will be faithful and righteous and uphold and and succeed in all the places that the Levites have failed. You see, the, the stern warnings of Malachi 2 have to be read in conjunction with Malachi 3. You, we'll get to this in a couple months, hopefully. But if, uh, if you recall, the book of Malachi is set up as one big chiasm that moves inward toward a central passage. And we'll come to that next week in the middle of chapter 2. So this section about the messengers of the covenant, the third section, the C section, is about the messengers of the covenant, the Levites, the original messengers of the covenant, and the way that they had failed and fallen down on the job. The C section on the other side, in the beginning of chapter 3, is about another messenger of the covenant, who it turns out is Jesus. He is the faithful messenger of the covenant who will come and purify the Levites and make the worship of Israel acceptable again. Of course, He's the messenger and the mediator of a new and better covenant. He hasn't come to merely purify the Levitical priests, but He has fulfilled the types and shadows of the old covenant. He has inaugurated a new priesthood. Not a, he's not a Levitical priest. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek, as Hebrews tells us. He has purchased with His own blood an entire kingdom of priests who participate in His priestly ministry not in the tabernacle made with hands, but in spirit and in truth in the heavenly sanctuary as we ascend with Him into the presence of God. This means that Jesus succeeds everywhere that the Levites had failed. Jesus is the Redeemer who turns curses into blessings. Jesus brings life out of death. He redeems what was lost, what was broken, and makes it new and even better. Jesus is the spotless Lamb who has washed us clean in His own blood, not the blood of bulls and goats. And Jesus has provided true instruction True Torah. John 1 tells us that Jesus has exegeted the Father. He has made known the Father to us. God's presence which was hidden behind all the veils and all the curtains of the temple and the tabernacle has now been made known to us all. The light of God now dwells among us in Jesus. This is the faithful, true Torah true instruction that Jesus the High Priest brings to us. And finally, there are many more ways that this is true, but Jesus is the Prince of Peace, is He not? The Prince of Shalom. He has reconciled God and man and gives abundant life, life and peace to all who submit to His Lordship. Jesus is the messenger of the covenant. The greater messenger and mediator of a new and better covenant. As I conclude, I want to 
make one final point of application because we could stop there and that would be that would be great that would be very good news but remember that when Jesus inaugurated the new covenant he purchased for himself a people of priests a nation of priests a royal priesthood is what first peter and others tell us So instead of having one tribe or one group of people for whom uh, priestly duties are exclusively reserved, there is a place for the ordained ministry within the people of God. I'm not nullifying that reality. But think in terms of what it means that we are, the church is, the body of Christ is, the priesthood of God, a royal priesthood in a holy nation. Because the new covenant church is this kingdom of priests, the priestly duties of covenant messengers that we read about in places like Malachi apply in different ways to you and me and to every member of God's church. Any sort of covenant relationship that you find yourself in, and there are numerous ones if you stop and think about it, carries some sort of requirement to serve as a messenger of God's covenant in that relationship, in that position. The, res- the, res- uh, the responsibility to live God's Word, God's Torah, God's instruction, and, the, and in many cases, the responsibility to teach and instruct others in God's Word is incumbent upon all of us as priests in God's kingdom. Obviously, pastors and, and elders and teachers in the church have this responsibility in a very obvious way, but that does not at all minimize the responsibility and the obligation that we all have in so many different areas of our lives. Husbands have a somewhat priestly role in leading their families and instructing their families in God's Word. Fathers and mothers have a priestly type role in instructing their children in God's Word. I'd say employers and teachers of any kind, have an opportunity and an obligation to instruct those under their authority in God's Word, to live out God's Word before the people that they are responsible for. I think magistrates, civil magistrates, as servants of God, deacons of God, have a teaching role. The law of the land should hold a teaching function, a didactic function. And I think that's important uh, to think about. Regardless of your position uh, or whether you hold authority over anyone else, any position that we hold any kind of influence in, whether it's uh, a relationship, a friendship uh, with or or having younger siblings or uh, any kind of relationship where you have any kind of influence, I believe that To be a priest in God's kingdom, to be a messenger of the covenant, requires that we are all diligent to not only live out God's word before others faithfully and demonstrate 
uh, the goodness of God's Word to the world around us, but also to take the opportunity when appropriate to teach and instruct and explain. Peter puts it this way, to give a reason, give a defense, an explanation for the hope that we have within us. So may God give us grace to uphold His Word and to bring honor to His name as priests in His kingdom and messengers in His new covenant. Amen. As God's royal priesthood, let us stand together for prayer. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Spirit, Creator of the heavens and the earth, You spoke this universe by the word of Your power, and You uphold it by that same word and by the mighty working of Your Spirit. And therefore, we praise You and we worship You as the only God, the only true God. You are holy and mighty and gracious and just and all-glorious. And we know this because the world and its story is full of Your glory. You framed the heavens and the earth and filled them with treasures. And when we disdain that gift and reach for our own glory, You sent us out into the world, but Your grace has followed us down through the ages. And since under the guidance of Your Son we have been united together in the body of Your church, which has been so often scattered, give that we may continually continue in the unity of faith, and perseverely fight against all the temptations of the world, and never deviate from the right course, whatever new troubles may daily arise. And though we are exposed to many deaths, toils, and tribulations, let us not be seized with fear, such as may extinguish in our hearts every hope, but may we learn to raise up our eyes and minds and all our thoughts to your great power, by which you empower your people, and so that though we may be daily exposed to ruin, our soul may ever aspire to, aspire to eternal salvation until you again show yourself in the most true manner at the last day when we shall enjoy that endless felicity which has been obtained for us by the blood of your only begotten Son, our Lord, in whom you revealed your glory and receive our prayers. Lord, reveal the glory and presence of your Spirit alive in the world today. Free us from our doubts and empower us to act as a transformed people. We acknowledge that You live and reign forever and ever, and we bless You that You have brought us by Your grace to see the light of this day and to let our hearts be raised up into the heavenly world. May we worship today with cheerful hearts and holy desire, and we thank You we find Your presence in the assembly of Your people. Let us step away from this place in the light of Your countenance, deep in Your love declared into the world through Christ Jesus. Lord, today we especially remember persecuted Christians around the world. We pray that you would give them strength and steadfastness in their faith to persevere and to be a light unto your name. Lord, we pray for needed financial support for Christ the Redeemer Presbyterian Church and West Baker family and for all those with Peru mission. We pray for churches in the Ukraine, especially those that are affected with the conflict with Russia. We pray for those in the pastures with Jeep, the Joint Eastern European Project and Poland, Hungary, and Bulgaria, for Blake Purcell and the SRS Bible Theological Seminary. Lord, we pray for the classical school in Iraq as they are involved in helping refugees in the area and persecuted Christians in the Middle East. And we pray for Bradley and Sarah Cordell, missionaries with Mission to the World in Ukraine. And Lord, more locally, we remember the needs of our local body. We pray especially for this morning for Jacob Hamby's brother Caleb, who may be entering the final stages of his life. 
We pray for health and strength for Eric Scotchless's mother as she endures more tests this week. And we pray for clarity of mind for the doctors doing those tests and for safety for Eric's travel. We pray for Shelly Narvison's sister, Lindsay Scogan. We thank you for Rhonda Snow's recovery. We pray for the continued healing for Wyatt Rickles, for Mike Passarilla, for Brad Steffler, for Mary, Mary Jo Mosley's father, for Sarah Claudia and her mother, and for Michelle Stevenson, Bethany Laughlin, and Ashley Hamblin. We pray for all those battling cancer, for Joanne Perry, for Vicki Walker, Sylvia Douglas, Brenda Jordan, Gregory Morris, Caleb Hamby, Suzanne Shelton, Martha Godwin, Ann Bullard, Amy Sanders, Patsy Sadler, and others who are not named here. We pray for all those serving in military duty, for all of our aging parents and grandparents and loved ones in need of more care. We pray for all those who are grieving the loss of a loved one and all those who are seeking new or better employment, for our engaged couples and our singles, and for those who desire to have children to be fruitful, and also for our expectant mothers and babies. And Lord, we summarize all these prayers in the prayer that your Son and our Savior taught us, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.